0: This episode is sponsored by Amazon Original Podcast, Uncommon Ground with Van Jones. In this new show, Van explores topics that impact us all from climate change to racial inequality, the state of our democracy to quality education, access for all. Listen to Uncommon Ground on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, thanks to Territory Foods. Territory is a chef-driven marketplace of sustainably sourced, nutritionally dense, ready-to-eat meals. To save $75 across your first three orders and get free shipping, go to territoryfoods.com and use the promo code DREAMJOB. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. We have such a good episode today. Jonathan Fields is here and he wrote a new book and I'm just so excited to dive in. You're going to love this. It's right up your alley. Um, before we talk about this, I just wanted to tell you two things. First of all, I was thinking a lot about happiness and I was thinking a lot about how that really is what everybody's after, right? Like why do you want to have a better career as you think it'll make you happier, right? Why do you want to make more money? You're hoping that that will make you feel happier. It's all really about that emotional payoff of feeling happier. And it dawns on me, like, why don't we do something in this moment to feel happier? Why do we wait to put our happiness on something happening, right? Like, oh, I'll be happier when I Move into this new house I'll be happier when I start dating somebody I start whatever it is um you know there's been studies on this and it doesn't really work right like yes those things can contribute to our happiness but we can feel good right now right we we know that there are certain better thoughts that we can think that might lead us to a feeling that feels better like we could feel gratitude we could feel. Curious, we could feel wonder, we could feel we could daydream and start getting excited about what we can imagine happening. And when I talk to people about how do you actually like create the life of your dreams, everything I know about what really makes things happen, it has to do with feeling good and and really being able to find the good now in the here and now. And then when we do that. It's amazing how our energy is just like a, it just becomes such a force for good. And it starts to bring to us like, you know, you'll get these like little like divine downloads. You'll be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking all, all, all of a sudden I want to call this person or I have an idea. I think I want to, you know, start this kind of a book club or you know what I want to do? Like, you'll just get like this hit because you're, you're feeling this like feeling of being in the flow. Something's feeling good. And then when I say to people, You know, that's actually how you manifest dreams and beautiful things is by feeling good. People get upset, like, oh, wait, you mean I have to feel good in order to like create something that I really want in my life? And I'm like, yeah. And then I'm like, wow, that's amazing that that's too much of a cost. (laughs) Like, People are not willing to feel good. That's too much of a cost that you have to feel good first, that you have to feel good. That's too much of a price to pay to then be in a position where your vibration is, is, is then going to lead you to so much amazing things and incredible experiences and opportunities? Like what the heck? Right. So I just think that there's like so much juicy stuff in there. And I was reflecting on it this week because my producer, Emma and I, we celebrated with our families this week. It's been five years since we met. We started recording in October of 2016, and we launched our very first podcast, January of 2017. And Emma was so young then, she was only 23, and I was 37, and I had just had my third daughter. And I just had this feeling of like, all right, let's try this and I'll see if I can record this. And and she was just very much in the spirit of like, sure, we'll figure it out. It wasn't like she had like a history of, you know, having been a producer for years. Like she was twenty-three years old, just graduating from BU and just had this can do attitude. And I was like, Let's let's try it. And so we just did, right? And we recorded the first episode and and I remember when we recorded the second episode, I was like, Oh, I hate the way I sound and I don't know if I can actually go through with this, but then in the end we said, you know what, let's just go ahead and do it. And part of the reason that we did it is because it was about the fact that the process itself was something that we both felt would be fun. It was like, oh, it's fun to just make this. And so it wasn't like, oh, we'll be happy when there's a million downloads. We'll be happy when the show grosses six figures or seven figures. It was like, why don't we just enjoy this process, like every person we interview is like unwrapping a gift and we get to hear about this person and be curious and we get to meet listeners and whether there's 14 listeners or nine listeners, it's still like people that we can impact. And it's just incredible how I remember hearing from Maddie, who, who's who been working with us selling our advertising. I remember her telling me, she's like, you know, you need to have about 12,000 downloads before things like really start to take off from a monetary standpoint i was like oh forget it that's just crazy and now the podcast has been you know it's almost 5 years we put it out january 2017 as i was saying and and we're we're almost at 25 million downloads you know it's just amazing so i want to celebrate this with all of you and i was thinking maybe some of you are inspired and you're like i want to start a podcast and if you do, then head on over to my, um, Instagram. I'm, I'm doing a giveaway. If you go to kathyheller.com slash giveaway, you'll be led to the post where I posted a picture of me and Emma. And actually I posted a bunch of slides that sort of show the evolution of the podcast because Emma made me this amazing scrapbook where you can see the first email, um, where I was introduced to the idea of a podcast. You're going to see a bunch of cool milestones in there. It was such a beautiful scrapbook she gave me. It made me cry. And I'm going to be giving five of you a little bundle just as a celebration. So you'll get a podcast microphone, you'll get some swag like a sweatshirt and a mug plus some Halloween candy because why not? So all you have to do is go to kathyheller.com slash giveaway and you'll find the post on Instagram. And if you are really like interested and excited and want to start a podcast, then You should DM me on Instagram anyway because I have a checklist um, on what you need to get started and I'm happy to share that with you. You can always find me on Instagram at kathy.heller. All right. Well, I'm really excited because my friend Jonathan Fields is back on the podcast. He is a best-selling author, producer, business innovator, top podcaster, and founder, CEO, and chief architect of Spark Endeavors. Jonathan came on the podcast a few years ago to share his story and what he had figured out about what it means to live a good life. So if you haven't heard that episode, you definitely want to go check that one out. This time, he's here to talk about his new incredible book, Sparked, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes Us Come Alive. It's all about how to find out what lights you up, what fills you up with meaning, joy, purpose, and possibility, and how to spend the rest of your life doing it. This book also outlines this awesome assessment that Jonathan created to help you figure out what he calls your sparkotype. It's really fascinating, so you guys got to get a copy of this book and take the assessment right after you hear this episode. Also, you can go listen to his amazing podcast, The Good Life Project, where he shares inspirational, intimate conversations about living a fully engaged, fiercely connected, and purpose-drenched life. He's had guests like Brene Brown, Seth Godin, Matthew McConaughey, Glennon Doyle, Mel Robbins, Liz Gilbert, Julia Cameron and so many more of your favorite people. So you're definitely gonna love his show. Jonathan is one of those people who has become really successful, but so not pretentious. And he has an incredible presence and generosity. I loved having him back. And I was so excited to share this with all of you. So without further ado, please welcome the remarkable Jonathan Fields. Hi, Jonathan Fields. Thanks for coming back.
1: It's so good to be back with you.
0: I mean, I was just saying that if there was ever a book that was great for my audience to read, it's this book, Spark discover your unique imprint for work that makes you come alive. Everything about this. First of all, the person who wrote it, you know him, he's a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> so Larry Davis, your Eunice, you're just such a beautiful open heart, but then this actual content is so good. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into it right now. So, what made you want to say these things? Like what led you to this? Like, okay, I have to put this in a book.
1: Yeah. So the book is really, it's sort of like the, um, the thing that couldn't not happen at the end of probably about two decades of work. You know, last time we talked, which was like a chunk of years ago, I was focusing more broadly on the question of what does it mean to live a good life? And that's been like a big part of my curiosity for my entire adult life. But a lot of it has always been wrapped around the question of work, you know, and why? I mean, similar to you, like we have this kind of fascination. It's the thing that we spend most of our waking hours doing. And I trace it. It's funny. I was like trying to figure out like, what's the real origin story behind this recently. And I'm pretty confident that the wheels really get set in motion for this whole body of work during 9-11 or right after 9-11, when I was living in New York City, where I would spent my entire adult life until about a year ago and knew somebody, actually probably multiple people who didn't come home that day. And you know it was a devastating moment for me, for the city, for, for so many different people, for all of the reasons that we all know. And I was sort of wandering through that time and it brought me home to the fact that we're not made any promises that, you know, we wake up in the morning and God willing, we get to come home at night and hug the people that we love and, and have spent the day doing something that matters to us, but you don't know. And, you know, yeah. I started really kind of re-examining like, what is the thing that I want to do with my life? And for me, that was like a really odd time. And I think we've talked about this in the past. You know, I had literally signed a six-year lease for a Florida building to open the yoga studio the day before 9-11, ended up really trying to figure out whether I was really going to do it in part because of what happened and because of you know, people who I knew who didn't come home. I said, yes, this is the thing I have to do right now. And it turned into an extraordinary sort of season of my life. And that season also took me a lot deeper into Eastern philosophy and traditions, which are steeped so much more in the big existential questions and in the pursuit of, of meaning rather than sort of a more fleeting pursuit of happiness. Yep. And that's always been a part of my inquiry. It's like, how do we wake up in the morning and do something that feels truly nourishing to us? And probably about five, six years ago, it started to become even more centered for me and I started to really wonder, you know what's driving us underneath all the jobs, the roles, the titles, the industries, the expectations, what's the deeper impulse for work inside of us that makes us come alive? Is it as unique as like seven point eight billion unique impulses, or is that just the way that it shows up in a sort of like a very individualized service level way and can show up in a hundred different ways you know like in a hundred different seasons of life, but is there a deeper impulse and is there something that's kind of universal across all human beings? I had no idea if there would be, if I would find anything or not. So I literally started deconstructing just giant lists of jobs and roles and titles and industries. And I was looking for like, what is the fundamental unit of effort? What is the fundamental way that we exert ourselves in all these different descriptions and these 10 different impulses for effort started showing up over and over and over again in different combinations. And which surprised me actually that it distilled down to that pretty pretty quickly because I like to consider myself sort of like pretty unique also. And, you know, I'm like, I'm a delicate flower who's like, nobody is like me in the world. But in fact, you know, there is this universal set of impulses. And once I identify them, I start to realize you you and I are similar in a lot of ways. We're kind of students of human behavior. Like we're constantly just, we're observing how people move through the world. And it starts to become really clear that each one of these impulses also has wrapped around it a pretty mappable set of behaviors and tendencies and preferences that form archetypes. And I started calling them spark types really, because it was just a fun way to say, you know, mm-hmm. the, the archetype for work that sparks you. And I started sharing them around. And the response was, was really tremendous. People were like, this actually, it feels really valid. It feels really useful too. And I started sharing them with colleagues, with clients, and was just getting tremendous feedback, but I wanted feedback on an entirely different level. I needed to know at scale how real these were, how useful they were. So we spent 2018 building an assessment. Most of the year, it kept breaking. We kept having to reimagine what are the prompts? What is the algorithm? Because the algorithm behind our assessment is actually unusually complex. It's not just sort of like a straight math problem. And when we finally released it out of beta, sort of like the world just raised their hand and said, yes, yes, yes. And As we have this conversation, about 600,000 people have completed the assessment, generating right around 30 million data points. We've done some follow-on research that's shown some just incredible correlations with things that really matter. And then like a mountain of stories and use cases and just tons and tons and tons of things coming into my head saying, oh, this is actually how it shows up in the world. This is how it showed up in my intimate relationship. This is how it showed up between like, the team that I lead or between colleagues that I work with or with me and a client that I have or with a kid or you know, in a school setting or in a career counselor setting. So you know, it, it got to a point a couple of years ago where there was literally the volume of data, both quantitative and qualitative, that was in my head was it needed a release valve? <laughs> so because I needed a way for people to sort of like to be able to just share it all without people having to go through me as you know one unique human being. So that it was time to write the book. You know, it was time to pour everything that I had learned up until that point into the book and just try and make it as as detailed, as story driven, as data driven. It's like just everything that I could fold into to try and just share everything that I learned and it kind of became like the, you know, the inevitable thing that it could not do. And then for me, it's fun because, so my type, my impulse for for effort or for work that makes Become Alive is what I call the maker, which is all, it's driven by the process of creation. Like I make ideas manifest. That is the underlying impulse of the maker. So when I say yes to a book, then I'm just like all in because now I go into my maker cave and I take all of this stuff like that my scientist side has been fleshing out for years and now I turn it into something real, um, something tangible, something like a social object that I can offer out into the world. And so it was a really powerful experience. It was also really interesting because I was writing the book last year, you know, so- right.
0: During the pandemic.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, we literally sold the book. We took the book to market at the end of February. We had fast interest in it. It sold in the beginning of March, literally as the week that- New York shut down, the book sold. And I basically, you know, went into my space of just saying, All right, you know, I have a family to take care of. We're all terrified right at that particular moment for our well-being and for the world's well being. And hunkering down in New York City, which in you know, the spring of last year was an absolutely devastating place to be. I can't even imagine. And that. yeah, and and it was in a weird way. It was one of the things that really allowed me to, to touch stone, to like every day know that there was something, there was, a, there was an impulse that I had that I could honor and show up and devote time to that I could keep returning to that helped me stay, I think, more centered than I might have been had I not had it. I mean, I had the podcast, I have all sorts of other things, but the podcast was also turned completely upside down. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we didn't know if it would continue on because for six years we had only recorded in person in our studio in New York. So, you know, the book became this one central thing that was my maker outlet. And so it served all these multiple purposes for me, which is a really powerful experience in a lot of ways.
0: I mean, it's just there's so much to unpack. And I do want to say something about you, which is you bring so much presence to every interview you do, to every interaction you have. And it's such a thing to point out because it's so obvious that you integrate all of the beautiful traditions that you love, the work that you teach. I mean, I love that about you because for anyone who sits in my seat, you know, when you have everybody come through on a book launch or whatever it is, you can kind of feel sometimes that there is like this routine aspect to it, but you just kind of drop in and... I think that's why all of your work is so felt and received is because of your intention. I just wanted to like, just mirror that back to you. It's just so loving and it's so kind. So I want to thank you for that. And then this book, you know, it's, I said, and I wasn't really just saying it to say it, it really is the book for this audience. You know, we, since you and I have met, we now have like 25 million downloads and Jonathan, every time I meet someone, I'm like, great. So you know, let's get you doing the thing you really want to do. And it's like, cool. I have no idea what that is. And I'm like, oh, so it's not just about having to figure out how you do something. Like, it's what the heck is it? And we've had Angela Duckworth here and Emily S. Fahani-Smith. And I remember both of them saying that two-thirds of the world doesn't know their thing. It's only like one-third that maybe knows since they're little kids that they love making ceramics or, you know, they love writing and everyone else is just like on this journey. So what is it was my first question? What is it that's blocking us? Right? Because it's such a phenomenon. I mean, why is it first of all, that so many people are are, are so unaware? What, What is it in our culture or in the way that we're brought up that keeps us from having access to that answer? First of all,
1: So I want to speak to that, but I want to speak to something you just said also, um, which is that notion that two thirds of the world actually doesn't know what their thing is. I actually think that's a wildly optimistic number. Yeah. I I think it's closer to, to probably 98%. And there's sort of like, I want to deconstruct that just unpack it a touch more because here's what my experience has been sort of like really immersing myself in this work for a chunk of time now. And that is- even those who feel like they know what they're thinking, usually will point to a very specific job or role or title or set of tasks and processes or a medium, right? So let's say you have somebody who's a painter, right? And they've been painting since they were six. And they're like, I identify as a painter. I've known my thing since I was six years old. And then they're rocking on, they're painting, right? And then God forbid something happens in their lives and they can't paint anymore, right? If what you've done is identify yourself primarily with the surface level expression of a deeper impulse and you stand in your identity on that surface level, then when your ability to do that ends or changes in some meaningful way, and it it always will, you know, it always will, then you feel like you've come to an end. You feel like you can't like, now the thing, yeah, it's like now the thing that you're here to do. You're, you can't do anymore. Whereas, if you actually go deeper than that, if you actually ask yourself, okay, so painting, cool. Like, there's something about paint, there's something about brushes, there's something about oil and canvas that I love. And, and I know this feeling because I spent a season of my life painting and I love it, you know. But if that was sort of like the way that I formed my, the core of my identity, when and if my ability to do that changes. Then I feel like no longer have I just lost a pursuit, but literally my entire sense of identity, my reason for being has been stripped from me. If instead you say, What is the deeper impulse Mm -hmm. beneath this surface level expression that is almost like my DNA level thing? Then if you hit a point where, like, you know, you can't paint anymore or you can't work on cars anymore or you know, if you were a visually oriented person and your eyesight starts to, to yeah. be impaired on a level where you can't do it anymore, yes, you will still grieve the loss of that. But at the same time, you'll know there's a deeper impulse in me. I know what it is. And because I actually can identify on that level, I can now look back out at it, the world and say, what is a universe of ways, new channels, new forms, new media, new conduits of expression that I might find? where this impulse can still be brought to bear, but maybe in a profoundly different way. Yeah. So I think a lot of like of that third of people that, like you mentioned, my sense is a lot of those folks probably identify with that sort of like a, a time-limited surface level expression. Mm-hmm. But I would venture to guess most of them actually don't know what the deeper impulse is underneath yeah. that. Yeah. So they're still going to end up in that same existential crisis when they hit that point in life, when for some reason they just can't do it or They can't do it at a level which allows them to feel fully expressed anymore. So it becomes more frustrating and futility creating than actually joyful. So they step away from it and then they don't, they don't have any sense of, well, what now? Which is why I've been so focused on the deeper impulse. So that was like a really big, I keep like taking us on tangents. No, it's so so beautiful.
0: No, and it actually just made me think of something that our mutual friend, Seth Godin said to me, he's been on the show three times and he's, he's become like a father figure in my life. And I remember him saying when I was, you know, in my young twenties, I thought I was going to be teaching canoeing in the West Canadian mountains. Like I wound up teaching marketing and it's because of, what really is like who I am could be translated in either place. And so now what you just said, I'm thinking about from the perspective of people who listen to the show and they say, well, I don't get it. Like I thought I love to paint, but I'm not making money as a painter. And it seems as though for some reason people want to pay me to, I don't know, be a script editor or whatever it is. And I love this idea of like, well, if you can find what actually uniquely is the thing that's making you come alive, you might be able to do it in a realm that you could get paid for that you actually could find so much meaning around because you let go of this identity where you are only feeling fulfilled as yourself if it's attached to this one particular way of expressing it. So I love what you're saying, because I think that's what Seth was saying. He's like, whatever lit me up about that. I feel the same way in a room talking to people about software and it's nothing to do with. It, it doesn't seem like on the surface they're connected at all. So then what is that? How do we, how do we find out what that is?
1: Yeah. And, and going back to your question, it's like, why do most people not know this thing? Yeah, and I, I think the answer is pretty simple. It's because we don't know that it exists. You know, so we don't go searching for it. It's the reason i i spent i've spent so much time and and so many years now deepening into this work is because there are great tools out there to get a lot of answers. There are all sorts of assessments you know like from myers briggs to disk to strings finder to vm yeah. to all this stuff and they're great there's great spiritual process around it, and they're great things that sort of like you know like once you identify something, tell you how to map out and build around it. But what I wasn't finding was something that was really unique to understanding what the deeper driver under each thing is. Being able to actually have somebody walk through a process where fairly quickly they could understand what there's were and you could validate it with a ton of data, but intuitively it just landed as accurate and that it was useful. It would guide decisions and behavior. And so we didn't know that these impulses existed. And frankly, I didn't know if they did or didn't before I started into this work. Like I said, I was kind of agnostic. I was like, wouldn't it be cool if they did and we could map them out and build tools to help people figure them out? But I had no idea. And I've done a lot of work and I've I've explored a lot of different bodies of work similar to you from social science to academics to positive psych to philosophy, theology, business. And if I've literally you know, like build my life to be able to full time pursue and explore all of these things. And I didn't know at that point, whether these things existed and could be identified, then somebody who's like working and living and raising a family and he like can't, has barely any time to devote to these questions. Right. Um, Forget it. it. Right. It's sort of like, you're really starting behind the eight ball there. And it's also, it's not a part of our from a Western sort of like cultural standpoint, asking these kind of questions is just not a part of our experience in traditional education. It is more so in Eastern philosophy and Eastern traditions, but even there, it's actually, it's, it's changed a lot. So I think a lot of the reason we don't know is because a we didn't know that there was something inside of us that existed that could be identified yeah. that was pretty universal and would stay with us largely for life. And then we were never taught how to explore and how to discover what this thing is. I think every once in a while, people stumble upon it, either accidentally or through inadvertent experimentation over a period of decades. But even then, like I said, oftentimes they associate it with whatever that surface level expression or job is that elicited the feeling and not with a deeper impulse. Right, And that, that becomes, you know, and then the job ends.
2: Yeah. And
1: then like, you wonder why you can't recreate the feeling somewhere else. And it's because you think it was about the job and it was about something underneath it.
0: Right. This conversation is so good, but before we keep going, I just want to thank our sponsors. Thanks to Territory Foods for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Territory is a chef-driven marketplace of meals that are sustainably sourced, packed with nutrition, and they only use healthy fats, clean proteins, etc. Plus, the entire menu is free of gluten, inflammatory oils, dairy, and refined sugar. There are 10 plans, including the Mediterranean diet, paleo, vegan, Whole30, and keto-friendly, or you can bypass the diets completely and just choose what looks good to you. Territory meals are available in most major cities in the U.S. The locally-driven menus feature as many as 90 items every week adapting with the seasons and latest food trends. So there's always something new to try. Meals are delivered twice a week to ensure that they always are fresh, and you can order as many as 12 meals for each delivery day. With their risk-free subscription, you can easily pause or cancel your meals at any time. They sent me some really yummy meals. My favorite so far are the Mediterranean salmon and lemon aioli and the tropical bowl with coconut rice and lentils. I've been trying to be more healthy, so I love that I can set a range for grams for specific nutrients like fat, protein, and sodium. And it's so convenient because a lot of times I only have a few minutes for lunch, and those meals only take like 90 seconds to heat up. To save $75 for your first three orders plus free shipping, go to territoryfoods.com and use the promo code DREAMJOB. That's $75 you can save across your first three orders along with free shipping by going to territoryfoods.com with the promo code DREAMJOB. In Uncommon Ground with Van Jones, a new Amazon original podcast, Van explores topics that impact us all from climate change to racial inequality, the state of our democracy, to quality education, access for all. As a news commentator, Van Jones hears opinions from across the political spectrum and knows how difficult it can be to find that common ground. So in this new show, he talks to thought leaders about how to join hands in pursuit of unity and building bridges to bring people together. I got to listen to a preview of his episode with Chef Jose Andres, and it was just so powerful to hear his story and how his family influenced his incredible philosophy of giving back food. It feels like the world can be so divided these days. So I love that this podcast is bringing in people with all different perspectives and shining a light on what makes us all human. It's something I strive to do with my show. So I really admire that Van Jones is having these important conversations. And if you love Don't Keep Your Day Job, I think you're going to be such a fan of this show. So go check it out. Listen to Uncommon Ground on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's so beautiful how in the actual title of the book and and everything that you keep coming back to, it's really about what makes you come alive, right? Like you didn't say like, discover the imprint that will make you the most successful or that make you the most money, or it's like, it makes you come alive. And, and another one of probably our mutual friends, Gay Hendricks, you know, talks about like this zone of genius and like how often people just never even get a glimpse of that part of themselves. I feel like sadly, Most people go through their life, they don't have that experience of coming alive, like whatever that means. Talk to us about what you mean by that and how we can even get a glimpse, like take a little audit of whether or not we we ever experienced that, and then how to like hold on to it so that we can maybe rediscover that feeling coming
1: alive. Yeah, so I uh, thank you so much for asking that. You know, when I use the phrase coming alive a lot, I use it kind of interchangeably with the word spark. You know, like but I think it's also really important to create clarity around them cuz in the world of personal growth there's so much ambiguity. Words like passion have become so just like watered down and also people mean entirely different things when they use the word.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so when I use the phrase coming alive, I'm talking about the overlap between five states. It's like a Venn diagram with five different states. And, the, and those five states for me are the experience of meaning, like what you're doing actually matters. It, it, you feel like when you're doing it, you have a sense of meaning. The second one is flow, access to flow. And you know this is that state where you become utterly absorbed in the thing. You literally lose the ability to differentiate yourself from the thing that you're doing. You lose a sense of time. You know, sadly, the leading researcher in, in this domain, Mihai Mihaly Mihai just passed last week. But it's, it's a really well-researched and studied state. And yeah. it also leads to incredible benefits, hypercognition, hypercreativity, hyper-efficiency. Like you literally perform at an astonishing level, but it also, you just feel amazing when you're there. The third element is what the corporate world would kind of call engagement. I like simpler words. So I talk about it as excitement and energy. Like you wake up in the morning, And even if you know it's going to be a lot of hours and it's going to be hard work, you're really excited to do it and it gives you energy. And the fourth state is what I call expressed potential. Like you're not holding anything back. All of you gets to show up, your identity, your preferences, your quirkiness, your gifts and your potential. And then the fifth piece of it is purpose. And that tends to function on two levels. One is an immediate sense of purpose. Like you know what you're working towards and it matters to you. And then more broadly, that you have a sense of purpose in life, that you have this feeling like you're doing the thing that you're here to do. What's kind of cool is all five of those different domains are each well-studied. There's a lot of academic literature on all of them that shows that they're identifiable and that they really matter. They matter to the human experience. They matter to your ability to flourish. They matter to your ability to wake up in the morning and feel like you have a reason for being here. So so when I use the phrase coming alive or being sparked or work that makes you come alive, I'm talking about ways that you invest yourself. And that could be in your job, that could be in a primary role, like a parent or a caretaker or a devotion. Some people, that's their full-time thing. You know, it's the way that you show up and invest your energy that gets you as close to the overlap of those five feelings as often as possible. And I really had to deconstruct that from my own experience because I was like, what am I feeling when I'm in that place where it feels like I'm doing the thing that I'm here to do? And it took a while to really tease out those different states. So, and that goes to sort of like the next part of the question that you asked, which is, well, how can people figure this out? And that's where, you know, like we stole away in, in the that's living amazing. lab for a full year and built an assessment, which is really designed around eliciting you recalling. When you have felt those five different states, and what has actually triggered it for you in different parts of life, and you know the the prompts in the assessment are we try and make them related to those five states, and also what what I would call longitudinal, meaning I'm really asking you to reflect back on something that has been a through line for a long time, not just like a passing thing that you felt here and there, because we're trying to figure out something that is really like a a core part of who you are. That's been a sustained thread for your entire life, so you know the, the the assessment was really the central thing that I wanted to create. That's where the maker in me kicked in. Also, it's like let's create something that people can interact with, spend maybe fifteen minutes, you know, thoughtfully answering some questions. Some of them which are are not easy to answer. Um, and by the way, the assessment is actually not the same for every person. It's uh, part of the algorithm. Kind of watches how you're answering questions. And it will dynamically add specialized additional questions mm. to nudge you to work harder to make more discerning choices if it senses that you're not. So that's wow. why I said it's it's actually a lot more complex under the hood. It's also one of the reasons why reporting that we get reported back to us that it's so accurate is that people kind of feel like wow, this is spot on, and I feel seen. So that that's been a big part of the work is like to not just validate these ideas, but like how can we build tools. That will genuinely help people suss this stuff out. And then, how can we make it accessible? You know, the reason the assessment is not gated and that there's no paywall in front of it, and just anyone can go online and take it, is because it's part of my values. You know, that yes, if you want to go deeper into the work, we have a company built around this and we have to sustain ourselves as an organization. So at some point, we're going to ask you to help do that in exchange for more value. But for the core tool, I just want that to be available to anybody. Yep. you know, regardless of means.
0: Yeah. And we'll put the link at the end and we'll put the link in the show notes. So stay tuned. Cause you'll hear where to, where to find it. But I have to say, I love those, those five pieces because up until I read your book, the explanation I had heard or the closest thing to that was like the Ikigai, right? And the Ikigai is really three things. And I wanted to ask you because one of the three things in the Ikigai is like, what the world needs, right? Not about you, but about the world.
1: So So what do you think about that? Yeah, that's (laughs) actually wrong. That's a Western overlay of the the notion of Ikigai.
0: My mind is blown. This is the first I'm ever hearing about that.
1: Yeah, we love money in the Western world. So like the, you know, you see that that Venn diagram all over the interwebs where it's like the thing that you love to do, the thing that you're good at doing, uh, you skill that, and then the thing that the world wants to pay you to do. Yeah, That has has nothing to do with actually what the fundamental notion of ikigai is. Ikigai, like the way it's been described to me by people who I legitimately trust is, it's, it's literally the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning, right? So if you're a grandparent and you're like, the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning is that you're living in a household with your grandchildren. right? You cannot wait to open your eyes and take care of them and love them and be loved up by them. And then you have like, a close group of friends and you get to go and hang out with them and share stories and ideas and like reflect on history together, and then maybe contribute in some way or volunteer in the neighborhood. Right. If we take that, like, you know, that three circle Venn diagram and we overlay it with that. Well, according to sort of like that diagram, that can't be your icky guy because nobody's showing up to pay you for it. And maybe you're not super skilled at it which is complete and utter, it's just not true. It's not, it's not what it is. You know, it, it has nothing to do with that. guy is literally, it's the deeper impulse that lies inside of you. That is your reason for getting up in the morning. It is, it is your sense of purpose. I, I've always wondered where sort of like that the Western overlay came from, because you do see it all over the place. But the fundamental notion of it, it's not about that. It's one of those three circles.
0: <laughs> but But what is interesting is that the examples you just gave, while they weren't Things that people traded for money, they were things that people did to contribute to other people, and that was really more my question is how much of what lights us up, lights us up because it impacts somebody else?
1: Yeah, so so this is something that I've spent a lot of time on, also. Because so, of these 10 sparkotypes, they all follow along a spectrum, what I call the satisfaction spectrum, and some of them are very fulfilled purely by process. Some of them are very fulfilled heavily by service. And then some are kind of lie in the middle. Now, if you're somebody, and, and the classic thing is some, something cannot give you a sense of purpose or be a purpose thing like in your life if it is not largely in service of others. Mm. Now, if your sparkotype lies on the side of the spectrum where it is very externally oriented and in service of others, the nurture is one of the sparkotypes, which lies on the extreme service side of the satisfaction spectrum. So you wake up in the morning and you literally have to be in relation to other people, elevating them, lifting them up, giving care, taking care, often when others can't or won't, then for sure, like you fall squarely in that definition. But let's say, for example, you're a maker, which is my primary sparkotype, which falls very heavily on the process side of the satisfaction spectrum. I can like wake up in the morning and I've done this for like seasons of my life, you know, and I can't, like when I was painting, watch, well, I'll give you a much more recent example. So three years ago, I took a month off of work and I vanished away and I lived in this sort of like cobbled together, partially finished bedroom on top of a partially renovated roadhouse in rural Pennsylvania, where I look out the window, looking at cows. And every morning I would go downstairs Wow. and I would spend 13 hours a day Working with my hands, building, like actually just like constructing for the better part of a month. I paid for the privilege to do this, thousands of dollars. And what I was doing is I was working side by side with a luthier, which you know it is, but a, a lot of other people may not know. A luthier is a master guitar builder. And we were working side by side because he was teaching me how to build a guitar from, from nothing, an acoustic guitar with my hands. So I'm work, I am laboring like crazy. Now, this guitar is never going to benefit anyone else. Like for all I know, I'm never going to play for anyone else. It's going to be a terrible guitar. It's going to sound awful. And the first time I strum it, it may just spontaneously combust because I know how little glue is actually holding this thing together, right? So why am I doing this? And, <laughs> and, and during that month, I felt more alive, more engaged, more on purpose. Like I was showing up and I felt like it was literally doing the thing I was like here to do, working with my hands, Right. There was like zero intention to benefit another human being in that. But my fundamental impulse, my maker impulse to make ideas manifest is so fiercely generative, so fiercely driven by the process of creation that I was completely and utterly fulfilled. And I would do that for the rest of my life. And and a lot of the things that I do are focused really, really heavily on process. So for me, I'm deeply nourished simply by process, whether or not it ever affects anyone else. Now, does that mean I'm a sociopath and I could care less about other people? (laughs) No, of course not. I love my family. I love my community. I love knowing that I can create tools that actually go out and make a difference and people's lives. That's awesome to me. That is an incredible benefit of what I'm doing. But if I'm really being honest, it's not the singular reason that I'm doing it. It's part of what makes me feel amazing about what I do. But the process side simply having the opportunity to immerse myself in a process that I can't explain why it makes me feel the way I do, but I know that it does. That alone is phenomenal. And I have met, and I, and I'm sure you have too. I would imagine, especially in your music days, right? People where like they would literally vanish and just compose or create or record for days and days and days on end, put them in a studio. Right. And they love the fact that they're creating something that then goes out and maybe like other artists, play or they play. And it, like it, it brings community together and moves people emotionally. But the truth is for that particular person, they're really being honest for a lot of them. They love that. But part of the reason they love it is not necessarily because it's in service of others, but because what that thing can evoke in other human being becomes a measuring stick for the level of craft that they have built around the process that makes them come alive. And that's what's really going on there. So it's like, wow. what's interesting is that if you happen to fall organically on the service side of the satisfaction spectrum, then all the sort of like the, the popular you know, like tropes fit you and you feel really, really good about that. If you fall sort of like really further on the process satisfied side of the spectrum, you have been told your whole life that you're broken. That what you do and the, the fact that this thing makes you feel incredible that it actually can't make you feel that good. And that there's something that's, that's off unless it is entirely in service of someone else. And again, like, it doesn't mean that you don't care about other people, you do. It doesn't mean that you don't love the fact that what you have made through that process really affects other people. You love that, but it's not the core reason why you do it.
0: This is so fascinating. And especially coming from you, because I think you're someone who, everyone if they were describing you like one of the things that's like right up there is like generous and like very altruistic I would say like right away and so I love that you're like taking a stand for this because I have this conversation with my husband all the time and he's like very sweet you know like my my grandparents are like you know Jews from New York his grandparents are Jews from Chicago and like the Midwest it's just like nice it's like like there's so drama, like the Midwestern sort of all the stereotypes of the Midwest. Right. And he's that way. And yet he's very introverted. And so there've been times where like, we're having conversations and I'm like, how come you don't walk in the room and like be generous with everyone with your energy? And he's like, what does that mean that I'm not, I, I'm he's shy, like more on the shy side. And he goes, it's almost like you're saying that if a person kind of just likes to spend time by themselves or just be a reader or whatever he is like that. That's less, that's, that's less ideal or somehow like that person's selfish or, you know, and you're right. Like at the same time, people will love him. Like we'll leave a party and like, Oh, he added so much. I'm like, he said three words and he's such a nice person with integrity, not pretentious, you know, like, I guess it's just so fascinating what you're saying and coming from you, it adds so much weight. And I'm thinking about people like Michelangelo or Tom Petty, who like pretty much fit the description of what you're saying. Like they're kind of off having their own experience. And if anything, we're just witnessing them having their experience in their flow state, but it, You're right. It doesn't seem like, oh, the only reason it was worthwhile, you know, to write free falling is because it would affect these people in the second row and that otherwise I wouldn't write it. And I do think we live in that time where people feel as though feeling fulfilled and satisfied is not the question. It's really about how how you you have to make sure that everything you're doing is, is pleasing and belonging for somebody else.
1: Yeah. And there's also, it actually gets even more complicated because there are actually really good reasons to be pro-social and to be altruistic and to give, you know, but they get layered into this thing. It's like that, that the work has to be service focused or else you can't, you know, like when you are, When you're giving, when you're generous, it makes you feel good for a lot of us. A, it's good for society. It's good for human beings. It's good for people that you love. It creates the world that we all want to inhabit. That is amazing. It's also good for you, but for different reasons. You know, it's good for you because of what's what's been termed the giver's glow. There's a a psychosocial phenomenon where we literally, our, our physiological and our psychological states change for the better when we are generous. Right. So even if it doesn't come naturally, even if that's not sort of like your wiring yeah. as uh, your sparkotype, there are a lot of other reasons to be generous that makes society better and makes you feel better. You know, the giver's glow is one of them. So, you know, it's like we, we don't have to layer into this one thing like the work that, you know, it, the work that you do has to be completely other focused in order for you to have a sense of purpose in life. You know, like it may or it may not be. To me, it's more important to align whatever you do with whatever your fundamental impulse or effort is that makes you come alive. And at the same time, there's a really good chance that when you're in that zone, without even intending it, even if you're on the process side, you're going to create all sorts of stuff that really benefits other people. And then you can take actions beyond that simply because. You want to be a, a genuine, like real, valuable contributor to a good society, to an ethical society, yeah. to a society that yeah, you want course. to inhabit. And also, because yeah. you know that it actually does make you feel better, but, but for different reasons. So there are a lot of arguments to be a good person, to be a generous person. But to say to somebody who literally is entirely nourished by the act of painting in a studio, that that is not a valuable or a, a right, that is not right action. That is not a valid use of their time. That is a selfish act, you know, is to literally deny their identity, deny yeah. their reason for being. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's harmful.
0: Yeah. I have a few more things to ask you, but I first want to give a shout out to a woman and a podcast that I love. Have you listened to the Thrive by Design podcast with Tracy Matthews? Her show is awesome, especially if you make or sell physical products like jewelry or other handmade items. Tracy is a mentor to creatives, the author of The Desired Brand Effect, which releases on November 9th, and she's been a serial entrepreneur for the past 25 years. If you're ready to stand out in a saturated market with a timeless brand, then you have to listen to Thrive by Design and pick up a copy of The Desired Brand Effect. Every episode is packed with practical business advice, tips to help you spend more time on the creative parts of your business, and inspiring stories from independent brands doing great great things in the world. Go to flourishthriveacademy.com slash Kathy. That's F-L-O-U-R-I-S-H T-R-I-V-E-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y.com forward slash Kathy to listen to my episode with Tracy. And you're going to get your free guide, the ultimate online marketing guide for makers, designers, and retailers. I've spent so much of my life being such a like a pleaser like a concierge like you know there's just like my family dynamic so it's it's only now in in recent moments that I'm learning that it's okay for me to go do something just because it gives me tremendous pleasure and doesn't necessarily hold everyone's stuff or whatever it means but for people right now especially in our country where there's millions and millions of people quitting their jobs and desperately wanting to read this book and then hoping that this book will help them not only to find this flow and this, and this place that feels aligned, but to be able to apply it then to work that feels so much more satisfying, how can they take this and use this knowledge to find a job that, that they can get paid for that inherently stems from this?
1: Yeah, and that that is the ultimate question, especially now in the moment in time yeah. that we're in right now, where so many people are really reexamining. They're they're looking at the bargain that they made when they stepped into the world of work, oh often gosh. when they're in their late teens or twenties, and realizing twenty years later, oh, it's a it's not making me feel the way I thought it would mm-hmm. feel, and now like I'm I've been reacquainted with the impermanence of life and the groundlessness that's around me, and. That is not the bargain that I want to define my working life you know, for the terrible. rest of my life. So, on the one hand, it's devastating, and and also because it's coupled with just like such a profound global health, you know, health issue. And at the same time, the fact that millions of people are in this existential questioning, I think, is actually a good thing because oh, so much so, yeah, going to lead people to to your work, to like the work of so many of our friends, like just maybe some of the work that I'm doing and help them try and figure out like, what is the bargain I want to make moving forward? So, you know, for me, it starts out with, with identifying what is your sparkotype. When you take the assessment, there are three things you learn, what we call your primary sparkotype. It's like your strongest impulse for effort that makes you come alive. Your shadow, which is not the Jungian shadow. It's, it's the thing that lives in the shadow, of the primary. Think of it as like your next strongest impulse or there's often a more nuanced relationship. It's the thing that you do, you like doing, you're good at doing, but you also do it in order to be able to do the work of your primary at a higher level. And then in your profile, we also share your anti sparkotype which is the type of work that is the heaviest lift. It empties you out the most, it requires the greatest amount of recovery. So once you know these things about yourself and providing they ring true to you, right. And I'm always somebody who says, no matter what assessment you take, you know, whether it's Sparketype or StrengthsFinder or Myers-Briggs, whatever it is, you know, no one assessment is going to overwrite what you would know to intuitively be right or wrong. So like you take it, if it lands true, and for most people with the Sparketypes, it does, then you ask yourself, like the next step is not, well, how do I blow things up and then go find something that is aligned with this? First, you just look at what you're doing and ask yourself how well or not well aligned is what I'm doing currently with this deeper set of impulses that I have to move towards something and move away from something. Yep. What most people find, and it's surprising to them is that it's actually not as, as poorly aligned as they thought, but they're not having the opportunity to do as much of the work as a spark the type as they like. But the thing is part of the reason that they're not doing it is because they didn't know what this impulse was. So they didn't know how to look for opportunities to do more of it, even in the context of the work they're already doing once you know what it is very often people can look out at the work that they're doing they can say okay so you know i don't have enough opportunity to do the work that nurses me and maybe i'm doing a little bit too much of the anti-sparker type work is there a way for me to reimagine what i'm doing without making a bigger more disruptive change without completely resigning walking away and doing something else can i reimagine can i job craft can i do something You know What are the tasks, the processes, the projects, the products, the services, the teams that are available to me that would allow me to express this thing at a much higher level? And what most people will find is that those things do exist. You may have to do a little bit of work and a little bit of figuring out and be creative and sometimes step outside of the confines of your job description to make it happen. But very often you can on a level that lets you literally reimagine what you're doing to give you so much more. Because now for the first time in your life, you actually understand what to look to do more of and what to look to do less of to get the feeling that you want to have. So the first step, first discover what your spark type is. Second, do a bit of a diagnostic with the work you're currently doing. Third, see if you can actually do some reimagining and reinventing, because that will very often get you way closer to that feeling that you want to feel. And then you don't have to go through the process of blowing everything up and all the disruption that very often comes with that, especially if you're doing it In the middle years of your life where you have responsibilities and expenses and people looking to you for a sense of stability or security. And you also very likely have some level of of a sacred value built around security and financial stability. And you want to honor that, you know, and this lets you actually honor that value, but reimagine what you're doing. Now, you still may get to that point and say, it's better for sure, but I'm still not there. Yeah. So then to me, I still don't think the next step is to blow it up and look for another job. Then it's, okay, so what can I do outside of the context of my paid work, mm-hmm. right? What are the, the activities, the, the roles, the devotions that I might say yes to or create or build on the side, whether it becomes a side hustle or not, that would simply allow me a conduit to express this thing that is so important for me. And that has to get out for me to feel okay in the world the blend of that for a lot of people actually gets them fully there. And they're actually really, really happy because now they can honor that value of financial security. Their job is optimized. So it's way better than it was. And the complement of the other stuff makes the whole blend of it feel really good. Now you may still get to that point and say, I'm still not quite there. And that becomes the moment where you turn out to the world and you say, okay, so what else might I look for? And the cool thing about this is two things. One When you start to look for something new from that place, you're now stepping into the search process from a place of deeper self-awareness and self-knowledge, from a place not of victimhood, but of agency and control and intentionality. Whereas if you did it as the first step out, most people would leave from a place of dejection, futility, lack of self-awareness, and victimhood. And you're going to transmit that energy in the process of trying to find something new. And it's going to create a completely different environment for you when you're interacting with people. And then when you say, okay, so well, what, what job should I look for? Like if I'm a maker, what right. job should I look for? What industry should I look at? So here's a cool thing about that. Because you know the fundamental impulse, you know, for you, the most important thing Is I need to be in a position in an industry, in a company, on a team, working on a product or service where I have a substantial ability to show up and be immersed in the process of ideation and creation, because you know that that is central to you. Instead of being constrained by some arbitrary list of jobs, you get to actually look at the universe of opportunities and say, what will allow me to express this impulse? You know, So if you want to you know, like build a barn or be in a home construction, if you want to work on this space shuttle, if you want to paint pictures, if you want to work on a team coding, all different domains, all different skill sets, they all involve the same impulse. So the universe of possibilities becomes so much vaster to you. So rather than some limitation or artificial constraint, what operating on this level gives you is freedom that you didn't have before. And that means that you may actually have to work a little bit harder in the beginning because there's no obvious short list of things to start checking boxes from. But the bigger, longer-term thing is that you actually have so much more freedom to explore nearly anything that you want to do and bring that impulse to it.
0: Yeah, that's what I was just feeling is the freedom because we'll do these programs And in 12 weeks, people want to figure out an idea and then see if they can build it into a a side hustle of some kind. And they're so stuck, like you were saying earlier, on this one attribute of how it maybe was supposed to look versus the impulse versus what's at the root of it. And if you just take the root of it, you could apply that to so many things that you could, like you said, apply it to the job you already have in a different way or even do it somewhere on the side of what you're doing and then just continue to mosey along, actually now liking what you're doing differently because you at least have the outlet for it. But explain a little bit more about what you mean when you say because for those of us, you have to go read the book, everybody. But when you talk about these impulses, because you've used like maker as a example of one and I I read some of the books, I know there's the maven and there's the nurturing, you mentioned that one. But I think I want people to understand what you mean by impulses, because if you hear maker, you could hear that as a that one in particular is also a like a type of work. Right. But you really there's something about the sage, the essentialist. Like what was one question right now before we take the assessment, which everyone will go to we'll give them the link that helps us understand what you mean by impulse versus a category of work.
1: Yeah. So. Here's one just one sort of like way to to frame it that tends to resonate with a lot of people. If you think back to the time that you were like your youngest memories, you know, like where you would wake up in the morning and do something that required substantial amount of effort over an extended period of time. You weren't get paid for it. You know, like you're eight years old. This is not your job. There's no W2 that you get for it at the end of the day. But you literally wake up in the morning. And if given the opportunity to do it, you will say yes. And you'll work really hard. You wouldn't call it work as a kid, but the functionally you're actually investing a lot of effort in this thing for no other reason than the feeling that it gives you. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, and then you start to ask yourself, well, sort of like what was underneath that? Like if I deconstruct like the activity, like what were the fundamental things that I was doing that gave me that feeling? And you try and you sort of like, it's a process of stripping down. It's not, it's not the easiest process or a straightforward process. It's just one of the reasons we developed the assessment to try and just facilitate that experience and make it a whole lot more straightforward and direct and easy for people, because you could for sure go through a process of real self-inquiry and mapping and journaling therapy, a spiritual process, a lot of questioning, deep discovery, and I don't discount any of that. I think it's incredibly valuable. And at the same time, we're trying to, to come at it and basically say, you know, what were the things that you lost yourself in? And that's another prompt that you can ask yourself. What is a through line where for your entire life, like what is the thing that you do where you lose time? And it's not the thing where you're just like napping and you lose time, but what is the thing where you, that you do where you are investing a meaningful amount of effort over an extended period of time and you lose time doing it, you know? And the challenge is when we start to ask those questions, that's a beginning. But like we talked about earlier in our conversation, for most people, the immediate answer is the superficial expression of something, not the deeper impulse. And then the process is how do we go deeper than that? Like what is actually existing underneath that that's more um, sustained and applicable to what we do in the world?
0: Yeah. And what I love about this is for somebody because so many people come to us saying, I want to quit my job and I need to be able to replace this income. And what I love about this is if you really got at the heart of what the impulse is, and then you also found something that you can make money at, you could just find that aspect of that, right? That's what's so brilliant about it because you're right. It's not about the superficial. Cause I meet people all the time who say, I love music, but their songwriting just isn't phenomenal. It's like, well, you know, you could have a job where you listen to music all day long. You could be a music supervisor working on, you know, a Shonda Rhyme show. It's like, I can. It's like, yeah, what's the actual part you love? It doesn't have to look like this other thing that you was, I was like, it doesn't. It's like, no, there's so many other things. But you're right. That's not something that we've teased apart. This book is so good. And I want to, I have to touch on your podcast before you leave. So I want to talk about your podcast for a minute, but everyone, you're going to get this book you're going to love this book when when i first saw it i was like oh my gosh this is like the book i i wish i would have even thought to write it's so good and it's so intricate that you're going to love it and we'll we'll put the link like i said to the assessment. Jonathan happens to have one of the most phenomenal podcasts. I think it's you know one of the first podcasts i ever listened to ever and you were early to the party. When did you start your podcast?
1: Yeah so good life project started in 2012 as a video series and then we transitioned to audio in 2014 I wanna say and then we completely wrapped the video and just went all in on the podcast right. side when everyone thought that podcasting was dying they were like well, why would you ever do that you have like a video show that's growing really rapidly you have a big audience like and you're going to shut that down to go to a dying medium. And then, and I was like, that is exactly what I'm going to do. It seemed to um, work out
0: okay for you. Um, yeah,
1: I, got, I got lucky.
0: No, you you didn't. But maybe there's a little bit of mausoleum in it. Why do you think that the show has been so successful? What do you think it is at the heart of the show that lands with people in such a sincere, deep way?
1: Yeah, we've tried to tease that out over the years because, you know, we started there were, I don't know, 100,000 shows. Now there's something like 5 million shows. Um, And we've been very fortunate in being able to ride the wave through the years. um, Always, yeah. And and sustain sustain a community and audience. You know, it's funny because I thought about this a lot on and off over the years. And I often wonder what it is because there are plenty of interview shows. I mean, like you have a phenomenal show. You're so good at what you do. Like I love listening to you because- you always come at things differently and you bring your own back on it. And, and I love that you bring your own personal evolution into what's happening so that it like, mm-hmm. it reflects in the conversation. And I think, I think part of it, like, it's hard for me to talk about my show. So I'm going to talk a little bit more generally, if that's okay. And and I think like the thing that would sustain a quote interview format show in an ecosystem, which is so jam packed with shows right now is a sense of authenticity, like not showing up because I'm checking a box and because I happen to have a show, you know, and I'm obligated to do it. I'm genuinely interested in the question that created it, you know, and the question that created it is what does it mean to live a good life? You know, so for me, the fact that I get to, I don't choose people because they have big audiences and they're going to help me grow my show and promote it. I don't like all the stuff that, you know, I, that's, that's, that's never been my bent. So when I sit down with somebody, I find somebody who I consider to be an embodied teacher. And what I mean by that is somebody who hasn't just written the book or given the TED talk, yeah. but somebody where when you look at their lives, there's something about the way that they're living and the choices that they're making that tells you they've figured something out. And that may be you know like a world-class researcher. It may be somebody who's you know, the top of their industry. It may be like my next door neighbor. I don't care how famous or not famous you are, how accomplished by traditional standards you are. What I care is that there's something that you're showing me by the way that you're living your life that said, you figure something out and I want to know what that is. So I sit down from, from a place of genuine curiosity. And I also sit down with the expectation that everybody can be my teacher. I, I could care less about what your pedigree is, or what your background or your history is. You know, like there is no person on this planet who cannot be my teacher. And so I think, you know, you have to sit down with a sense of humility too and, and a real, and a presence. And I think also having been on the other side of the mic many, many times over the years now too, you know, it is, we prepare a lot, you know, I have a team. I'm very fortunate at this point, we've been doing it long enough. We have like an incredible team that I work with that helps me show up in the best possible way and we show up prepared, you know, and ready to actually do the work. And, you know, I think that's really important too, because that people read that in you. And there's one other thing that I'm going to speak to that I actually don't think I've ever shared. And maybe this is about me that that may be unique to me. And as you can gather, I'm really uncomfortable talking about this stuff when it comes to me. But so I have a decade I guess more than a decade long meditation and and breath practice right now. I didn't come to it because I wanted to. I came to it because I was going through something really hard and I was trying to hold myself together. What started as something that helped me get to sort of like from feeling really broken to to baseline has over the years become a, a practice of just really profound access to equanimity and the ability to be present and not distracted and and to be, really be with someone, whether it's in person or whether it's like, you know, over thousands of miles, like we're separated right now. And I, I feel like sometimes that's palpable. People can sense that, you know, I'm not checking boxes. I'm not going down a, a laundry list of pre-made questions. I'm just trying to get to the end. And I think guests feel that. I think you do this really well with your guests. Oh, thank you. You know, you're, you're so present with people that they feel it and they want to come back. And they feel like like you've created a container where you feel seen and held. And and I think that's rare, you know, because it takes real devotion and it takes the building of craft to be able to do that. And I think that is in, in the space can be a real distinguisher too. So I don't know what the whole like compilation of things that would make me or our show, you know, like continue to flourish on the level that it has for so long. But I think those are some of the things that tend to show up that really would differentiate someone in this space.
0: Yeah. You just brought tears to my eyes. That's so, so true. And it's exactly what I said about you about 30 seconds into today. And I've been a student of John Cabotzins for so long. And the only other person who reminds me of him besides him is you. There's just something you're just good. You're just, you have a goodness and there's a lot of nice people, but not a lot of people are good. And it's just so, it's just amazing. It's so simple. And it's it's just not something that we get to even like witness a lot of time. And that's what it is. There's just this calm, quiet, gentle, loving, safe space. And then when you talk to people, they just, ah, oh, they just feel like they can talk. So it's really just so awesome. And I'm so excited for you that you or putting this book in the world, because it's really like taking your seat in such a big way. And
1: yeah, it's a little bit terrifying too.
0: Yeah. I can only imagine.
1: I mean, I've written a bunch of books before, but most of them have been sort of like, this is my take On the work of a lot of other people, this is how I put it together. This is the first thing that is literally entirely my own, completely new body work. So it's it's exposure on a level that I normally don't go to, and it's it's been interesting.
0: Oh, it's so good for you, and it's so good for us to get to be a part of it. So, all right, well, you all have to go subscribe to the Good Life Project. You probably are already, but if you're not, you're going to love it. So you're welcome for that. And Jonathan, tell us where we can find this book and where we can just keep following along with you.
1: Yeah. So I'm just at Jonathan Fields pretty much everywhere on the interwebs and the mobile devices. If you want to take the Type assessment, it's just sparketype.com and Good Life Project Podcast. And the book is available at booksellers all over the world.
0: Amazing. Thank you. It's so good. I can't Mm. wait. I'm halfway through reading it, but I haven't taken the assessment yet. And I'm like, oh my God, the first thing I'm doing when I get out is I'm going to go do this assessment. So if you, if you guys go and do the assessment, do me a favor and DM me on Instagram. And, and if you find it helpful, send it to your friends and, and post about it on your Instagram stories and tag Jonathan so he can see which, which sparkotype you are because I want to know. Jonathan, thank you for coming.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It's really been so much fun.
0: This was the best. How awesome is Jonathan? That was such an eye-opening conversation. Here are the takeaways. Number one, we're not made any promises that we get to come home at night. So we have to wake up and do something that feels truly nourishing to us. Number two, there's a deeper impulse in you that opens up a universe of ways, new channels, new forms, new media, and new conduits of expression. Number three, the thing that you're here to do is the way that you show up and invest your energy. Number four, the ikigai is literally the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. It's the deeper impulse that lives inside of you. It's your sense of purpose. Number five, reimagine and reinvent. That will very often get you way closer to that feeling that you want to feel. Number six, you might have to work a little bit harder in the beginning, but in the long run, you're going to have so much more freedom to explore nearly anything that you want to do and bring that impulse to Number seven, start this journey of self-discovery by asking yourself, what are the things I love so much that I lose all sense of time when I'm doing it? And number eight, sit down from a place of genuine curiosity and with the expectation that everybody can be your teacher. All right, now I want to celebrate some of our alumni. Sherry said, I got paid this week. My friend and I got our first real paid gig doing some party decorating for a recruitment company. They loved it and are spreading the word to clients about us. We also have a clearer vision on our company. We help others execute their creative ideas and step it up a notch. I also got paid for an inner child call and portrait. This was such a beautiful, very emotional session because in visiting her inner child, she released so much trauma and was able to go back and love on herself. We both felt inspired and lighter at the end of it. It solidified my want to keep giving this offer out to others. Oh my gosh, Cherry, that is so amazing. You should be really proud of yourself for both of these wins. I love that you're putting yourself out there and getting clarity on what it is that you really want to do for the world. I'm so excited for you to keep growing and evolve. So you please keep us posted on everything that you're doing. You all can go give Cherry some love. Her Instagram is at Creating Cherry. Thank you guys so much for listening to this show. Thank you for all of the support. We've got so many amazing guests coming on soon. So please make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify, wherever you listen. And if you want to enter the giveaway, then go to kathyheller.com slash giveaway for all the details. I'll leave you with a song of mine. Have an amazing weekend and I'll talk to you on Monday.
2: ever seen How can we set each other